Hello and welcome to Socialism, the Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. Today we're going to be discussing the food and retail industry. We're pleased today to be joined by Ian Dalton, the chair of Usdor Broadleft, the union that represents food and retail workers across the UK, to discuss the impact of COVID-19 on the retail and supermarket sector. What's driving this in the decline of supermarkets and the onslaught on jobs and paying conditions that's being handed down and passed on to frontline workers who have worked throughout the pandemic? What's the role of trade unions in defending those workers who play such an important role in our society? And why is there still lots of talk about food shortages despite the supposed advanced nature of our society? What's the effects of Brexit? And how as socialists can we fight to overcome these shortages? How can we fight in the interests of workers in all of these important industries to defend their jobs, defend their livelihoods and fundamentally link that to the socialist changing society? Today's podcast looks at the food and retail industry. Hello and welcome to Socialism, the podcast from the Socialist Party. My name is Lenny Shale and I'm very pleased today to be joined by Ian Dalton from Yorkshire and the chair of the Usdor Broad Left. I mean, first of all, Ian, can you explain to us what Usdor is? Yeah, Usdor is the union of shop, distributive and allied workers, shop into Usdor. It represents mostly retail workers, but throughout the whole supply chain, so manufacturing, distribution, also things linked to that like pharmaceutical workers, dairy workers, and also things linked to the cooperative movement as well. So even like funeral directors in the funeral oh, really? sector. Okay. Yeah, all sorts of little pockets of this that, and the other as well. And, you know, banking workers in Tesco Bank, for example. Oh, but-, but predominantly, the bulk of the union is in what's known as the big four retail companies in the union, which is Tesco, Sainsbury's, Morrison's, and the co-op, as those represented by the GMB. But those unions account for the vast majority of the membership, and particularly Tesco's, is somewhere in the region of, I think, over a third of us our members work for Tesco. Interesting. And today we're going to be talking about the retail sector and the food industry, and you're the resident expert in the Socialist Party. So, I mean, to kick us off, Ian, you just went through all those different sectors that Usdor covers, but also areas of the industry we're going to be talking about that's a lot of workers and i think obviously related to what's going on currently in society they've been seen during covid as the key workers they've kept society going i think maybe just to kick things off related to that is obviously covid's massively impacted that sector and what do you think has been the main impact and what's the key issues affecting that area of work and workers in those industries so most workers in retail have still been going to work which is unlike many other sets of the economy there's been some people in sort of what's been dubbed non-essential retail who've been furloughed there's a few people who do more admin stuff who could work from home but most workers have no option of that you had to go into the store or be given you know permission to have time off a furlough to do that and i think you know that we've sort of had it almost like two different sides to covid as a result of that you've had the non-essential sector which has really borne the brunt of job losses, store closures over the last year. 180,000 retail jobs were lost in 2020, which is something like 3,400 for every week of the year. This year, there's predicted to be a further 200,000. That was a prediction made at the beginning of the year. You know, last year's figures, for example, didn't include 
the buyouts of Debenhams and Arcadia's brands by online retailers who are pretty much getting rid of all the jobs in yeah, there because yeah. they're getting rid of the stores. That accounts for 25,000 job losses, roughly, between the two of them. So, you know, that's been quite devastating on the one hand. You know, I think there's a lot of worry amongst those workers, even when they've gone back to work about, you know, is the company sustainable in the long run? Because as well as kind of, you know, they've had a lot of support from government for those companies in grants and business rate rebates and so on. But there's also been a moratorium on rents. Maybe I'm getting too specific here, but there's been a moratorium on rents which ends on the 30th of June. This is a moratorium from like councils. So from most retail companies don't own their own stores. A lot of that did were sold off. They were bought out by equity firms like, you know, Philip Green's Empire, BHS. Of course, when there's problems, they, they go after the workers. They, yeah. they rob their pensions, they rob their jobs, cut their jobs. They... Yeah, no, no, I mean, all that money was siphoned out of BHS years ago. Pay, pay, into, pay his wife's yacht or something yeah, like that. Yeah, 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 siphoned into Monaco a tax haven to do that. So, but, you know, there's been this increasing problem, though, of kind of, you know, because of the stores, the rent's due on a quarterly basis paid in arrears and that, and the collections of those have been down over the course of the year. You know, I think this year, the latest collection, I think, was only 67% of those due, which were due you know, at the end of May, for a quarter up to March. That's 5% down on a year ago, and it's lower than what was collected in the last two quarters of last year as well. So there's a real worry that, you know, landlords can be coming pursuing <laughs> retailers for rents, and they've not necessarily made up the gap from what they've lost and, and pursuing those arrears for the last year as well. So that's a bit of, you know, it's potentially more job losses coming as a result of that. And even then, the landlords have a bit of a dilemma because, like, what do they replace those with? If there's a shift, you know, we can maybe talk about this later, if there's a shift to online, then is there going to be the same numbers of companies to come into those places as well? So there's a real fear in that sector. And then on the other hand, you've got supermarkets. So the supermarkets... Prior to the pandemic, we've been squeezed by the growth of online retail and by discounters like Aldi and Lidl. But during the pandemic, then they've sort of done really well. They've had increased like-for-like sales. So that's, you know, an amount comparing for the exact floor space and stuff they've got. So Morrison's are up by 6.8% for the last, you know, in their figures. Tesco's were up 7% sales. And some of the stuff that was disadvantageous to them before, the fact that they built such large stores, which, you know, were wanting to cut down on the retail lines to compete with the discounters, you know, they became assets because it meant you could have more people in the store. During the pandemic, there'd been a push, for example, for increased Sunday trading, which there's restrictions on. It's quite a big issue because it's like the one day in a week for retail workers where, you know, you're likely not to be working quite as long and that because yeah. the opening hours are limited to um, six um, hours. Am um, I correct in yeah. thinking, the, obviously it used to be, if you did work on a Sunday, you usually expect double, if not triple pay and that's almost out of the window. Yeah, that's been eroded for over a number of years. So it's like any other day yeah. now. So there's a history with Sunday trading, which I can maybe go into a little, in that, you know, Sunday trading used to be illegal. Couldn't do it, you had a guaranteed day off. In the 90s, there were basically attempts of retail companies to open that up for retail sales to take place, you know, wanting to expand their possibilities of trading. Uh, Convenience stores have always been able to open there, but, you know, larger retail stores were banned. And, you know, what was brought in after a struggle took place, it was store organised pickets of 
supermarkets and so on. It's all before my time in the union. Yeah. <laughs> but there was a kind of, you know, this six-hour opening was brought in for supermarkets. And that's been the rule in place ever since. As a retail worker, you can opt out. And to get people to do those shifts, which, you know, the vast majority of people don't want to do, you know, they'd like to have some time with their families and friends and so on. Many of whom work, you know, Monday to Friday. Then they brought in these premium payments, you know, double time, time and a half. So when I worked for Morrison's, we were on time and a half because I live a mile from my family <laughs> in Bangor in the middle of North Wales. And that then, you know, I was quite keen to work Sundays because it meant I got paid more. But all things being equal, yeah. I don't want to work Sundays. It's harder to get to work then and <laughs> so on. But those have been eroded. So people have had relatively minor increases in their basic pay. Those premium payments have been got rid of. Pay breaks have been got rid of and so on. And, you know, we would say that actually what they've been traded away for wasn't really worth it because the minimum wage was going up at that level. So supermarkets, for a long time, the pay was just above minimum wage. Now it's slightly bit more above minimum wage, but really not substantially that different. And particularly when you compare to, you know, the company's profits, which even when Tesco's or Sainsbury's report they've not done as well, it's they've not made as much profit as they had been doing as opposed to they've not made, you know, it's not that they've lost money and that, it's just they've not done as well. And even in this year's financial reports, there's all sorts of messing about, you know, in terms of trying to justify job cuts, like Sainsbury's that are carrying Yeah, through. I've seen that. So Sainsbury's is, is like you said, like many supermarkets, they're very well, but now it's going after its workforce. Yeah. So, I mean, they have had extra costs in terms of COVID safety and so on. But generally speaking, when you compare it to other retail companies that have been shut the whole time, they've been able to continue trading, continue making money. A lot of them paid back the support they got from the government you know, because actually they've done quite well from it. Quite a few of them as well have spent more on sick pay because they've allowed people to go off sick from day one because of the worries of spreading virus, which obviously supermarkets was one of the places along with schools where it was responsible for a lot of transmissions. Yeah, so... Sainsbury's are one of the companies that are cutting jobs in stores. There's a lot of companies that have used the sort of temporary closures of counters in stores to kind of press ahead with closing them permanently, you know, which means that getting more pre-packed trees or meats and other stuff. Oh, they're closing the delis? Yeah, so all the delis in like Tesco's, for example, are closed now and other counters are only open part-time and that. And again, it's to try and boost profitability, you know, because you don't have to, you know, counters you've got, yeah. Counters you've got to Tesco went after there. They cut jobs there, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, there's been a process of it and obviously the pandemic, I mean, we've talked about in social party is a great accelerator and, you know, that's accelerated that trend. Personally, I used to work on a deli counter. I think it's really retrogressive because what you're getting as a customer is less choice over what you're buying. You know, you could get exactly what you wanted size and now you've kind of got to rummage through and hope that someone's pre-cut and (laughs) pre-packed what you want as well. So, you know, I mean, a lot of the companies talk about you know, their selling point has been quality service and so on. But the less staff you have, the less you're able to deliver on that. And, you know, again, that's, I think, shows the priorities of retail companies. You know, it's driven by profits, not by what is actually the most useful for people there. But, yeah, Sainsbury's are one of the companies that are doing that. They posted a technical loss this year, but they paid off £610 million of net debt this year, which is... <laughs> basically would have you know would have put them well into profit if they hadn't done that tesco's for example who had a kind of lower sales price they sold off their businesses in asia and that 
and gave £5 billion in payouts to shareholders and that all of them have paid the normal shareholders. Some of them paid special dividends. Some of them, Morrison's, for example, paid out a 27% bigger dividend than the previous financial year. So that was up by two and a half pence per share dividend to their shareholders during the pandemic. The CEOs have been very well remunerated and that, and what do retail workers get for that? You know, they've maybe had a COVID bonus while the stores were doing very well financially, but, you know, still some of the lowest paid workers in that sector. The lowest paid, but what obviously COVID has shown is actually without them, society would stop, wouldn't be able to function. And I think COVID's reflected in that. I mean, we'll go into some of those points later on. So what, what's driving this? There's lots of talks, and you touched on it, about the inevitable decline of retail, bricks and mortar, and is retail doomed? But all these people never get their jobs back, lose their jobs permanently now. There's definitely been a growth of online sales and, you know, that's accelerated into lockdown. Before the pandemic, about 20% of retail sales were online in the UK. That's probably increased to about 35% now. And there's other sort of signs of stuff, shopping centres going out of business into one of the companies that collapsed during the first wave of the pandemic of a big shopping centre company. And, you know, in particular, shopping centres tend to collapse. You know, if one of the big stores goes, then everything else starts to follow and becomes deserted. In the US, you know, where they're called the malls, you know, a third of all US malls have closed over the last couple of years. You know, I, I, I lived in Birmingham and the whole of Grand Central was built around John Lewis, which closed during the pandemic. And it just reflects, well, just the madness, really, of how they base that system of capitalism, really. No, exactly. And, you know, I would say there is a clear trend towards online growing, but there's not necessarily one speed at that, either in particular countries or, you know, in terms of what goods and so on, because, you know, it's definitely more pronounced where you've got goods that are more easily transportable, more easily stored. Take the example of Amazon. Amazon started with books, CDs, DVDs, stuff like that. They're not perishable. By and large, they're not going to get damaged in the same way that, you know, your food, for example, would. So there's more overheads to doing certain things like that. So, you know, companies tend to concentrate there. But even around the world, then online retail is, is a larger share in some of, for example, the neocolonial world where, you know, it's accessed through mobile phones and so on. And there's degrees of concentration. So like in China, you know, there's three companies control 90% of online retail sales. In the US, three companies control 50%. And it sort of diminishes the more there's a more developed bricks and mortar sector. But like most retail sales are still physical, you know, online retail's gone up to 35%, but that means that 65% is still physical in stores. So it's not an inevitable trend, I would say. There are definite advantages to online retailers of avoiding some of the costs of maintaining bricks and mortar stores, not paying business rates in all those stores and so on. But I think fundamentally, retail's always shifted. Generally speaking, retail started off as small traders and that, and then it's grown in scale and, you know, combined and <laughs> divided. There's been trends towards discounting and back away from it, which really depend on the kind of economic situation generally. You know, when times are hard, more people go to discounters and look for kind of a cheap deal than otherwise. But also it's to do with the kind of state of the class struggle, you know. 
if it's possible to employ people less doing a certain thing, it doesn't matter how efficient or not it is, then you end up employing people less. So if you can super exploit delivery drivers, for example, and that, then you get to do that even when you've got delivery drivers for the same company, sometimes dropping two things off at the same place in a day. If you can pay people less doing that than you can in bricks and mortar stores where there's more unionisation and more pressure to protect health and safety and so on, then you know, that's capitalism. That's what companies will do. They're driven to create profit for those at the top, not look after workers, not look after the best interests of the customers. So you touched on it, even when companies are doing well, they'll go after their workers. When they're not doing well, they'll go after their workers and they'll use every opportunity to, rather than, even when things can be more efficient, mm. they'll do it to drive down conditions, drive down wages to workers in whatever way they can. So what role for the retail unions, you touched on Usdor, yeah. how well organised are they and, and what role can they play in terms of combating this and standing up for workers? So, you know, there are a number of different unions that represent retail workers. Usdor's the main one. You know, GMB represent workers in Eisler and Wilco's. Sainsbury's workers have Unite and Usdor. BFAW represent workers in Greg's. Quite a bit of the high street actually is unionised. You know, I mentioned the supermarkets that Usdor covers, but also, you know, the recognised in Boots, Primark, Agos, Palmland, B&M Bargains and a whole number of other places. And, you know, like potentially there's power there. You know, there's been struggles around the world that have demonstrated retail workers have, you know, power to stop bosses' attacks in their tracks. I mean, there's been the heroic struggle of Debenham's workers in Ireland against the way that they were treated and the company avoiding paying them the proper redundancy, which had a year's worth of picketing take place under lockdown conditions and everything, you know. So no one can say that retail workers themselves aren't prepared to struggle. It's a question of the union leadership. And unfortunately, the approach of the leadership in Ustor, you know, is a right-wing partnership-driven approach. And partnership is the idea that we've got to work with the bosses. We've got to try and, and get And this is the, the, like the leadership, the, sort of the people at the top of the union, not the rank yeah, of... Yeah, yeah. It's really driven from the top... You'd almost say the sort of previous general secretary of Usdor, John Hannett, was like the poster boy <laughs> for that. Po- he was the poster boy for Blairism in the and trade unions you'd, you'd as well. you'd often they'll do joint press statements of the bosses of, of Tesco, the leadership of Usdor. Yeah, so... While, while the members Yeah, again. so you had, like, joint statements with the British Retail Consortium <laughs> on safety in stores. And, you know, the points that were agreed in it, actually, I would say, were quite good measures. The problem was, of course, that... As a trade union, the way you force that to happen is organise a campaign, organise your rank and file to fight to ensure that's put in place. But it was left at this kind of agreement at the top and then really only kind of pursued if individual reps or area organisers in the union of, you know, the local officials were prepared to follow that through on it. And, you know, there's a lot of workers in Ulster who are maybe quite new to trade unions. Supermarkets are everywhere, so it's not just in your kind of industrial hubs, but in quite rural places you can get people quite, sometimes we've got isolated yeah not experienced or have think they've got the backup yeah. to hold their boss to account or a manager exactly and what they're given by the other <laughs> leadership is that these people should just support it anyhow because it's what we've agreed with them <laughs> and, and unfortunately that's not how the pressures on store managers is to try and get the best sort of ratio of how much they're spending on staffing to what sales are getting 
And what often has been said to me when I've been at Usdorf things is, you know, the managers don't know the <laughs> don't know the rules that have been agreed often. You know, it's only when you've got that conscious organisation for representing members for health and safety that you can challenge that. So you mentioned earlier your chair of Usdorf Broad Left, also a member of the Socialist Party, and as I know there's a number of members of the Socialist Party in Usdorf and involved with Usdorf Broad Left. I'm guessing you're trying to change that. Yeah, so we're trying to fight against that. In reality, we're dealing with a new version of it under the new General Secretary of Ulster, Paddy Lillis, you know, what's been dubbed a tripartite approach. But the basic difference between that is trying to involve the Tory government <laughs> as well as the employers. It's the same real approach, and it flows from a lack of confidence. And we have to, you know, I think as the Debenhams strike showed, there's also been other strikes over the last few years of retail workers. There was a Lidl strike in Belgium three years ago, which won. There was a stop and shop strike in the US in 2019, which won a partial victory. And, you know, that was rank and file workers coming out on the picket line, taking action. Because a lead was given, they were prepared to struggle. And in the broad left, that's what we're trying to put forward. There's been issues around closures, around health and safety, where, frankly, the union didn't do what it should have done to help workers that were looking to struggle and organise. So Debenhams here have gone through the same process in Ireland, but in Ireland where they had rank file reps in the stores and that, then they sort of came out in struggle. In Britain, then there was some Debenhams workers in Manchester who organised protests. I think it's a real shame that, you know, Usdor's head office is based in Manchester. You know, we should have had officials from the union down there supporting and looking at how we could expand that. But, you know, it was down to lay activists, such as the sort of recently outgoing president of Usdor, Social Party member Amy Murphy, who went there and then was attacked by the union leadership for doing that, which is a disgrace. Richie Venton, the shop steward in IKEA, member of Usdor's executive, who was sacked for taking up health and safety issues. It was lay members that went and had protests outside IKEA stores to force them to deal with the issue. And, you know, while we didn't win his job back, won increased compensation because of that struggle of, you know, Usdor members, other trade unionists coming in solidarity. And there's an appetite for that, but that needs to be harnessed and taken forward. And, you know, w- what we're trying to do as social party members in the union, as a broad left in the union, is to try and organise people and give confidence. Because, you know, even on the issue of pay, the Morrison's pay deal a few years ago where they got rid of the premium payments, that was voted down by members, but no lead was given. So in effect, you know, when they came to discuss what to do next, it was like, well, we can either accept this or we'll have it imposed on us. And, you know, people ended up voting to accept it. A similar thing happened in Tesco's a few years before that. So there's a crying out for that sort of struggle and that and there has been a sort of improvement in that because of the pressure of the left we've got now a charter in the union for demands we've got a 10 pound an hour minimum wage demand that's actually been achieved in morrison's but in reality we adopted that 10 pounds an hour five years ago taking into account inflation it should be at least 12 pounds an hour and now so yes we've got 10 pounds an hour but which is a step forward but uh, but morrison's the only company that's done that sainsbury's who had a paid settlement earlier this year, they only increased their wages by 20p. You know, it's still quite a bit below £10 an hour there. So, you know, we need a strategy to campaign in communities, but also organise more people into the union and be prepared to take some form of action. GMB dispute over the newly imposed contract in Asda, for example, I think 
you know, you can be critical of the GMB for not sort of progressing beyond demonstrations, but those demonstrations gave confidence to the workers there. And, you know, they could have had a strategy in Asda of at least targeting some of the stores where they had a high density of membership to take strike action, even of a token nature that would then give confidence to people that that was possible. You know, we've not really had strike action in supermarkets in the UK. I mean, in my period of us though membership, I think there's been three strikes that have taken place, all in manufacturing distribution. There's two strike ballots, as we're recording this, they're in distribution and manufacturing. But I would say it's more difficult to organise in retail because, you know, in distribution and manufacturing, it's a single site, you shut that down, that affects everywhere those go to. But the stop and shop strike in the US, you know, they won a victory by picketing stores, by stopping deliveries coming in. It's possible, it's doable. And, you know, we need to fight for a leadership in the union that recognises that and gives confidence to people. Because I think the effect of the lockdown and the key work status is that people are more attuned now to thinking, well, we were being told we'd be really important earlier, so why are we still very low paid? Yeah. As will any other key worker. And so just on that point you just finished on, retail workers, food workers, like a lot of other workers in society that were traditionally seen as a low paid job of shelf stackers, till workers, but actually people realise, well, these are key workers, they're very important. So is that going to change now? Are shop workers, retail workers going to become some of the best paid in the country? Only with struggle. Uh, you know, I think that's, I think that's a short answer. It's only with struggle to so there is that. hope. We've got uh, to struggle for it. But we've got to struggle for it, yeah. I mean, you know, you look at retail actually has had a trend of going backwards over the last period. There was a survey that the British Retail Consortium put together about you know, what's the future of retail pay and retail jobs put back in 2015. But a really interesting figure in that was that low-paying society between 1990 and 2015 had increased from 15% to 21%, which is not good. But in retail, it had gone up from 33% to 57%. You know, so a much bigger increase in that there. And, you know, we need to struggle to change that. You know, under pressure of social party members and others in the broad left, then the union did adopt increase like campaigns for minimum pay the 10 pound an hour demand was adopted five years ago that was put into a more concrete campaign because of pressure of broad left members on the executive and that we had a campaigns that sort of went out time for better pay and so on it was probably the most active i've seen the union on those issues yeah. in some time but we've got to continue that that's going to be built upon and we've got to take it up in individual companies and say to members look we can campaign you know we should be raising the idea that why don't we have demonstrations and that outside the headquarters of companies demanding better pay and so on as a step towards preparing the ground for strike action because there's no tradition of that in britain amongst retail workers but you know you've got to start somewhere yeah Uh, yeah, (laughs) you know there's no tradition of strike amongst delivery riders yeah but you know we've seen strikes now of those workers who you know do interact with retail as well fantastic I mean, just moving on a bit, Ian, during the pandemic, I remember particularly at the start, we saw shortages of basic foods, particularly in the first few weeks. And since then, there's been various other shortages every now and again. What's this due to? So, I mean, the talk in the press at the time, obviously, was that this is panic buying, this is people being greedy, stockpiling, and so on. And yeah, I think there would have been some people that maybe buying more than they usually would, but given the uncertainty around talk of a lockdown, around talk of, you know, when we'd be able to open up and people be able to do anything, you know, it's a completely <laughs> rational yeah. response of people without any other indication of what to do. But it's also a product of the kind of, the way that supermarket supply chains are set up. 
you know, a lot of data is used to kind of predict how much of a certain good you need. Again, when I worked in Morrison's, I think it's a useful example. I worked in cooking chicken, chicken story. Yeah, yeah great. Chicken I went to make sure the chicken story came in. So, <laughs> you know, I used to be cooking those. And we had a semi-automatic reordering system for the chicken pork products that we were cooking there. So every day I'd go through saying, this is how much we've got left. We've got half a crate, we've got a full crate and that. And then you'd have something that kind of gave you a guide as to how much the head office would have as to what roughly we're selling at that time of year, at that day of the week and so on. And you'd get sent, right, this is how much we think you need to kind of cope with a sort of increase in demand. And that worked well most of the time, but even under normal periods, there were surges where you ran out of stuff and so on. But, you know, that's been driven through. So there wasn't really the ability to increase the capacity in the way it was needed. And how did companies deal with that? Well, eventually, eventually they introduced limits on how much customers could buy, but they were arbitrary. You know, one of the things that we raised in the Usdor Broad Left and in the activists, which is the bulletin that social party members in Usdor produce, was the need for, you know, those to be democratically decided. Why couldn't we have, you know, shop workers, representatives of local communities, you know, workers and suppliers, working out, you know, how much supply is there? And also, what do we recommend to people that you will need to buy to cope with not shopping for a period or, or yeah. whatever? You know, that sort of planning is quite important. Oh, brilliant, man. So, I mean... Again, on the issue of shortages, there's been a lot of talk about shortages due to how much food the UK imports, particularly around Brexit and the negotiations around that in the last few years. What does socialists say about this? What's our take on this argument that's often in the news? Yeah, so, you know, I think the fundamental issue is that the UK imports a significant proportion of foodstuff. Something like 45% of veg was imported from the EU and obviously more from other countries as well. 84% of fruit, which is mostly not from the EU, was imported from abroad. And, you know, just like with the pandemic, like a disruption to supply chains and so on, you know, has the potential there for there to be shortages. Now, why does this situation exist? Well, there's obviously some foods that you can't grow in Britain, or it would be very difficult to, or very expensive to set up special greenhouses and whatnot to do that. But in the main part, it's a product of the way the economy is set up, where subsidies go, and the supermarkets trying to exploit cheap labour where possible. Of the sort of food stuff that's produced, then very little of that money actually goes directly to the farms. It's something like 8% of the money from food goes to farmers. And, you know, the real debate is over where can we produce this cheaper? Can we source it from Spain or from, you know, other parts of the EU or North Africa? And that cheaper, including the shipping costs because of the lower wages, you know, in some places maybe lacks health and safety. And that, or is it cheaper to produce it in Britain? And that's led to downward pressure then on farm wages. So, you know, significant amounts of sort of farm labour, you know, is migrant labour. Seasonal labour, for example, The National Farmers Union put out a statement saying that 99% of it was from Eastern Europe and therefore potentially threatened by requirements for visas and so on. And you've seen this argument in the press, you know, recently about shortages of workers in other sectors. And it's not because those jobs are great that workers were coming to them. It's because they were, you know, low paid and through desperation. That's why you get people living in caravans on a farm for, you know, months on end. (laughs) Not because people want to, (laughs) you know, want to work in those conditions, but that, you know, wages have been driven down that much. And and like, for example, Corbyn, 
when he was leader of the Labour Party, talked about reintroducing the Agricultural Workers Board, which had set a higher minimum wage for agriculture. Huge exploitation of agricultural workers, isn't there? And and, and to sort of try and challenge that, which would be a start, but, I mean, it's not the whole picture. So the other thing I mentioned was the subsidies. So the EU's common agricultural policy is, is just, you know, terrible, really, from the point of view of actually making sure we produce the good quality food in that. 80% 80% of all the subsidies in the common agriculture policy go to 20% of farms. There's 18,000 UK farmers that got no support whatsoever. There's wealthy people that, you know, do very, very little farming that got, you know, big grants because it was based on the it's kind a, of... It's a, bit, it's a big racket, really. Yeah, it's based on the size of the farm, but you didn't have to actually have to have that much actually being cultivated. No, on what it's actually producing. Yeah. So it's, a la- yeah, it's the size of the land, but <laughs> yeah. you could just produce, like, you could just have, like, a... I don't know what they call them, but like small little, uh, uh, like little model farm sort of thing. <laughs> or grow, grow a few potatoes at the bottom yeah. or something like that. Yeah, 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 you know, so as long as it met a certain minimum, then you got it for the size of the land you had. So big landowners did really well out of it. There's lots of small holdings which did badly. And again, the Farm Workers Alliance, which sort of represents small farm holders, put out a statistic ahead of, you know, the EU referendum that between 2005 and 2015, then nine UK farms were lost every day, uh, which is staggering. It's a staggering figure and that. And so that's the other part of the problem is that there's food that could be grown here, but because of the prevailing economic conditions, it isn't. You know, so that, again, would have an impact on it. Now, the fundamental issue really is who's controlling those things, who's this system set up in aid of. Yes, there's subsidies to the landowners, but the real benefactors are the supermarkets who've been able to drive down the supply costs and increase their own profits. It's no different to a lot of companies, like car companies that have these mad supply chains mm. that bring parts from all over the world, take them back forth all over, just because it drives down wages, drive down conditions, yeah. whatever they can do to yeah. drive down the conditions of their workforce to increase their profits. Yeah. So you've had it in the dairy sector, there was protests of farmers bringing cows into supermarkets a few years back now, but that was because of how much farmers were being squeezed for milk, farm gate milk prices, you also had a showing up of these, you know, supply chains and the horse meat scandal. That's why horse meat was allowed to get in, you know, I mean, you had beef lasagna, which was 100% horse meat and that, but you had these supply chains that went through six or so processes, you know, of different companies in different countries across Europe, where, again, in the search for kind of cheaper raw materials, in this case, using horse meat instead of beef, then led to companies, you know, not checking <laughs> stuff. And, you know, like I say, there was no beef in the beef lasagna. <laughs> but there was lots of other companies, you know, as well as kind of, I think that was Findus, which is a ready meal supplier, but there's loads of other companies like that. So you've got this kind of totally irrational system that is based on what makes the most profit, particularly for the supermarket chains, but also for the food processors and the farmers get squeezed. And, you know, again, that gets even worse in a neo-colonial world, you know, What's as well. The socialist, then, what do we say about that? What, in terms of how food should be distributed and so on? So I think the key thing that we would say is that it's completely ludicrous that food supply, you know, something that we need to live... <laughs> is in the hands of private companies that are quite happy for people not to necessarily be able to have the most nutritious things or whatever, you know, will sell us whatever makes the most profit. I mean, you know, last decade or so, you've had a massive growth in food banks in Britain precisely because people can't afford to get even just any food, let alone (laughs) decent quality food. So, you know, we'd raise a need for the key parts of that 
sector, the food production and supply sector to be brought into public ownership. And we say the key demand as part of that is for public ownership of a big supermarket chain. So these are big profitable companies that have been driving down costs and conditions and most people depend on to get their food supplies. You know, we think they should be brought into public ownership under democratic workers' control and management so that, you know, decisions about what the stock, what prices and so on can be made by ordinary people to meet our needs, not the needs of, you know, big shareholders in these companies that, you know, basically just get a profit from nothing whilst the workers that are producing their profit, whether they're in the supermarkets themselves, they're in the manufacturing places or they're working on farms in agriculture and that, are paid, you know, almost uniformly very low wages. So, yeah, I mean, you touched on a lot of stuff about how during the pandemic and what was interesting is to overcome a lot of these shortages, the supermarkets started like pulling some of their distribution networks. And I mean, other stuff you touched on, it's clear that supermarkets plan. Now, we associates talk about planning on the basis of need, but supermarkets use it to make profit. What does it say about the role of the market? Well, I think it very much shows that the market isn't the best way to deliver goods and services if... You know, as I say, when you get a crisis, what is the reaction? It's to pull resources, it's to introduce some sort of coordination and so on. Now, capitalists plan internally within their firms to maximise those profits, but that's what they're driven by. And what we as socialists stand for fundamentally is a society based on meeting the needs of ordinary people. And that means access to good quality food and all the other goods and services we need to live our lives. So... You know, and there's huge wastage in that network as well in terms of every different supermarket chain will have their own distribution hubs in a certain area and so on. It adds to the travel time of things. You know, we've talked already about some of the distance that food travels to get to the plate and sometimes crossing backwards and forwards between places. You know, and I think as socialists, we would be arguing not necessarily for, you know, what makes the most profit, but what's the most rational use of those resources? You know, what would reduce the environmental impact of transporting those foodstuffs. How could you source things more locally if possible from farms in an area and so on in order to reduce that and make sure the food that we're eating is fresher, it's better quality and you know, ideally more affordable for people. And that would be the basis of planning. And, you know, I think you'd start with the big food manufacturers and the supermarket companies and they would have an impact in terms then of kind of what becomes possible for the small farms and stuff that you could begin to integrate into that network that you were developing there. And, you know, I think that opens up, uh, you know, all sorts of possibilities of how these things could be organised differently. And obviously we wouldn't separate that out from the wider economy because obviously, you know, the question of what vehicles are produced to transport things and so on, it's all linked together. You know, the question of using more rail freight, for example, and so on. All these things would have to be, you know, part and parcel of the socialist plan, you know, of the whole economy. Not imposed top down, but driven from the bottom up, involving supermarket workers, food manufacturing workers, you know, local communities, elected representatives, discussing, debating, what do we need in our community? You know, what would be useful? How do we best provide these things? It could so easily be done as well. It's clear it could be. Now, just to finish, Ian, I mean, you touched on a lot in the detail of the attacks facing workers in the retail industry that have already lost their jobs and also the attacks taking place against supermarket workers what are we going to do about it so you know what i think we have to do is put forward the question of how do we lead a battle to fight to protect these jobs and have the kind of services that we need in our towns and cities you know because the starting point at the moment 
you know, of a lot of the union leadership is that this is inevitable, there's nothing we can do. We just have to try and get the best redundancy payments we can for workers. That, you know, has ultimately been the approach of mandate in Ireland around, you know, the Irish retail union around the Debenhams strike in Ireland, pushing through a settlement rather than mobilising the wider trade union movement, rather than mobilising their wider membership, you know, to challenge what the company's done. But, for example, that dispute would have posed a question about what do you do, you know, with the stores, with the workers there, and so on. Because in retail in particular, you know, there can be shifts in taste, shifts in what people want to buy. And that which means that, you know, even if you take the question of profit out of it, is that necessarily the best use of those resources for people? And we would raise, you know, in the first instance of everything, question of where have the profits gone? You know, you know, you like to Philip Green and that, you know, why have they siphoned off money? They should be made to pay the cost, you know, open the books. But also, we argued a few years ago now on the back of the BHS debacle and the fact that pensions and the workers were attacked, but we argued that instead of just accepting stuff would have to close. You know, we passed a motion at Ulster Conference calling for the union to raise a question of nationalisation, of bringing into public ownership, you know, retail companies where job losses were threatened. Unfortunately, that resolution has been sat on by the Ulster leadership who, <laughs> on many occasions not since... Not surprising, let's be yeah, yeah, but on many occasions since, have not mentioned, you know, not raised the question of public ownership and so on. And that could be public ownership is a going concern, of taking that company, running it on a similar basis. It could mean taking that company and through discussion amongst workers, amongst elected representatives, local trade union, local community, that you had a debate and discussion about actually, you know, we could do with shops that sell these goods or whatever, or even transforming it into some other facility. But we would argue for full retraining for the workers there, for no loss of pay, for guaranteeing their jobs. And again, it poses this whole question about in whose interest is our society running? Whose interests are our high streets being run? And that is it in the interests of ordinary working class people? Is it in the interests of big business and profiteering? Because unfortunately, the approach of the Ulster leadership at the moment to the store closure and so on is a sort of protectionism for bricks and mortar retail. It's the question of bringing in an online tax, which is, uh, you know, like all tax on, you know, large companies and that, you know, you know we could be in favour of that. But they basically want to bring that in to subsidise the bricks and mortar retail sector, regardless of the size of the company or whatever. You know, I think, you know, we instead argue, you know, the key thing is taking the question of profit out of the equation, you know, and it's empowering ordinary working class people to have a say in what they want to do. And that, you know, lots of councils, for example, own shopping centres have bought over the last period really to kind of prop up those shopping centres to stop them losing business rates but now they're kind of millstones around the necks in some extent but they never use them to kind of involve the workers in the company you know when companies are asking for <laughs> you know rent reduction when they're asking to extend their opening hours councils have power over those things you know they should be consulting with the workers there with the union reps there you know is this something that workers want to see same with the future high streets fund you know the completely inadequate thing the government's brought in to try and bail out such as the high street by improving infrastructure, modernising things, converting shops or other things into flats or flats into shops. And that, that's been imposed in a top-down way. There's not a single trade unionist on the board of the thing. You know, it's full of big business representatives. The Labour High Streets Task Force has a single trade unionist on the board of it, which is Paddy Lillis, the other general secretary, but again, all the other representatives, you know, right-wing councillors, business groups, and that, you know, I think we have to stand really firm for saying, 
actually, you know, who are the people that know what working class people want, what working class people need, what is in our interest. It's ordinary workers and the wider working class, you know, coming together to make these decisions, taking the power out of the hands of the capitalist class and into our own. And really, I think that's the key question of how we have retail sector that's actually working in the interest of ordinary people, that's providing services, the opportunity for people to access goods and so on, that, you know, will be an important feature of any society. Brilliant. Thanks, Ian. Cheers. And if everyone's been listening today and agrees with everything what we say, what should they do? They should join the Socialist Party. Brilliant. Thank you. Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party, the England and Wales section of the Committee for Workers International. Today we heard from Ian Dalton. I'm Lenny Shale, and this episode was edited by Nick Hart. You can find further reading in the notes of your podcast app if you want to get in touch. Email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk. Socialism the podcast relies on funding from our members and supporters. We have no big business backers, unsurprisingly, or adverts. This allows us to maintain our political independence. And can you help fund this podcast? You can make a regular donation or one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk slash donate. Even more importantly, Do you agree with the ideas of the Socialist Party and some of the stuff you've heard on the podcast today? Get in touch and find out about how you can become a member and join the fight for the socialist transformation of society in Britain and across the world. Apply to join at socialistparty.org.uk slash join. If you live outside England and Wales and want to join the fight for socialism wherever you are, contact the Committee for Workers International by visiting socialistworld.net. See you next week.